OCO Taishu Shidanalai. I'm Jay Winton Wolf, and this is the American Indian Indigenous People's Truce Justice for All, the most dangerous show on radio, podcasts, and everywhere else. I'll be right back to introduce my guest for today. Don't go away. Oh, Great Spirit, help me always to speak the truth quietly, to listen with an open mind when others speak, and to remember the peace that may be found in silence. OCO and greetings. I'm Jay Winter Night Wolf, the originator and host of the American Indian Indigenous People's Truths. Justice for All, the most dangerous show on radio, podcasts, and anywhere else. Welcome back. My guest today is Shaka Arubakan. Shaka is a native of Guyana, South America. He is an educator on the senior high school level. His forte is English literature and African history. He is also president of one of Maryland's Toastmasters International Clubs. He is an activist for black and native rights, a longtime friend and colleague. My second guest today is Isabel Honorate. Ms. Honorate is a professor of cultural anthropology and systems of oppression and power at Lehman College of New York. Isabel is no stranger to Nightwolf Productions. I'm elated to have these two distinguished guests on the American Indian Indigenous Peoples Truce today. We're going to talk uh, about two things quickly and briefly. Let's talk about the first pandemic. We got two pandemics that people of color are dealing with in what is known as the Republic of the United States, and one is the COVID-19 virus. Who wants to comment on that first? Honestly, uh, I have to say that right now, I'm, I'm, it's hard to think about the virus because the police brutality and violence that we're seeing across the nation is staggering. And I think um, perhaps the, our more urgent pandemic. However, I would say on the virus that, you know, right now we're sort of on a holding moment, waiting to see what happens now that people are more on the streets and less in quarantine. Now that some businesses have reopened. And so most scientists right now think that there will be a second wave. We just need to minimize the impact of the second wave. But clearly the police and their actions are not helping. So uh, so in any case, I would say to people, you know, right now, I would recommend that everyone continues protocols of precaution and hygiene. And, uh, and unless necessary for them to either 
exercise their constitutional rights or any sort of emergency to, you know, to continue the quarantine as much as possible for their own safety because the U.S. government is really not following science at all. Yeah. <laughs> In case it hasn't been true to people. So that, I think, would be my most important message right now about the pandemic. In terms of COVID-19, I would say this is something we've, we've known that was coming since 2004, as I said in the other show. Governments were alerted. Both the Chinese government and the U.S. government were alerted by the scientific community of Mm -hmm. the likelihood of this outbreak. It wasn't a question of if, but it was a question of when When. it would happen. Yeah, okay. Thank you. And governments should have been ready, but they were not. Absolutely. Shaka? One thing about this pandemic is COVID-19. It served to expose the weakness of the system that we call capitalism. But, you know, we have people who are affected in various ways. Mm -hmm. Those who are well-off, those who have access to health care, and those who can afford to maybe go hide in the big mansions and so on and have enough food, well, they're okay. But there's a lot of folks who, because of their circumstances, are going to be exposed. True. Right? We're going to tell them not to... You know, to practice social distances, we tell them a lot of things, but they're going to be exposed because of their circumstances. Mm-hmm. And so th- this pandemic has served to expose the, the cracks in the system. And we take a look, for instance, you know, one of the bad guys, according to the, the, um, the American um, sensibility, Cuba, mm-hmm. right? And, but this, this bad guy is actually um, taking care of, of their people. Mm-hmm. And they're, I think the last time I heard, there were like four to seven countries helping others. Yes. You know? yes. Um, so I think you know, what Bernie was trying to tell us since 2016, and nobody wanted to listen, and now Bernie looks like, 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 um, like a prophet. Yeah. You know? yeah. So I think that's my biggest impression of uh, what's going on here. This is the cracks have been exposed. Absolutely. I, um, I, I, I don't think you know this or not yet, Isabella, but uh, last Monday, I lost my, my sister to COVID-19. I'm sorry. And, uh, you know, that was a real awakening call for me and my family. Um, but they are telling uh, her husband that she courted an amp ambulance that transported her from Kaiser to, um, to Holy Cross Hospital. Mm. But... You know, I'm just wishing her well on her journey to spirit world and into the light. You know, I will miss her immensely. But the one thing that hurts me the most is because of this pandemic of, of coronavirus, she, the funeral home wouldn't cremate her. I mean, wouldn't uh, embalm her because of the coronavirus. So they had her cremated. But moving right along, um, there's a bigger pandemic that has hit all of us, but it's been going on for over five, 400 years right here in the Republic of the United States. And it's called racism. And I am so sorry that George Floyd met his, had to meet his maker the way he did. But this whole thing about of police brutality is nothing new to people of color, especially our African-American brothers and sisters, or should I say our black brothers and sisters. 
And it's no surprise to us as American Indians, because when they came here 500 years ago, they didn't come here on friendly terms. They came here as invaders. And the type of genocidal practices that they used on uh, American Indian tribes is just considered as an unforgivable sin. But for people to see what the, the police are doing now, and people need to understand that the police came out of uh, slavery. They were the ones that were hired by those that held people in bondage as the ones that go out and capture the slaves or, or the people that ran away. So this, this whole mentality of, of uh, policing in America is nothing new to us. Shaka? I'm just thinking that on last, this past Wednesday, two nights ago, mm -hmm. I was tasked to give a speech on active listening. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering how was I going to approach that. And it occurred to me that that's the problem that we have here in these yet-to-be United States, is that no one is listening. You know, almost 50 years ago, Malcolm X gave a fiery speech in Los Angeles after the killing of an unarmed black man by the name of Ronald Stokes by the police. Yep. The killing of our beloved brother Ronald T. Stokes. Ronald Stokes was not the least among the followers of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. He was one of the highest. He was the secretary of our Los Angeles mosque. And as we explained in that rally on May, many of you thought that we should go right on out then and make war on the white man. You wanted to do it yourself, didn't you? Didn't you? You wanted some action then, didn't you? Because you don't like the idea of white people shooting black people down, do you? And you're ready to do something about it, aren't you? We know you are. And the white man should be thankful that God has given the Honorable Elijah Muhammad the control over his followers that he has so that they can play it cool, calm, and collective and leave it in the hands of God. And that speech could have been given to yesterday. Yeah. You know, um, then, we, you know, in 67, we had Dr. King talking about the fact that rioting is the voice of the unheard. Say, as I've always said, and I will always continue to say, that riots are socially destructive and self-defeating. I'm still convinced that nonviolence is the most potent weapon available to oppress people in their struggle for freedom and justice. I feel that violence will only create more social problems than they will solve, that in a real sense it is impractical for the Negro to even think of mounting a violent revolution in the United States. So I will continue to condemn riots and continue to say to my brothers and sisters that this is not the way. Continue to affirm that there is another way. But at the same time, it is as necessary for me to be as vigorous in condemning the conditions which cause persons to feel that they must engage in riotous activities as it is for me to condemn riots. I think America must see 
that riots do not develop out of thin air. Certain conditions continue to exist in our society which must be condemned as vigorously as we condemn riots. But in the final analysis, a riot is the language of the unheard. What is it that America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. It has failed to hear that the promises of freedom and justice have not been met. And it has failed to hear that large segments of white society are more concerned about tranquility and the status quo than about justice, equality, and humanity. And so in a real sense, our nation's summers of riots are caused by our nation's winters of delay. And as long as America postpones justice, we stand in the position of having these recurrences of violence and riots over and over again. Social justice and progress are the absolute guarantors of riot prevention. Mm-hmm. This is their language, you know, and nobody listened. You know, then Rodney King situation happened. I feel that it's a great travesty of justice. I feel that the jury in Simi Valley gave the okay to continue to abuse and oppress and suppress black people in this country. I feel that there is an undercurrent of racism and that the system is rotten to the core. And I, I couldn't sit in my home and just watch it on television. I had to come here and let my voice be heard. And nobody listened. Colin Kaepernick started in those movies. Nobody listened. I mean, ultimately, it's to bring awareness and make people, you know, realize what's really going on in this country. There are a lot of things that are going on that are unjust, people aren't being held accountable for, and that's something that needs to change. That's something that, you know, this country stands for freedom, liberty, justice for all, and it's not happening for all right now. So I'm hoping that now, now that we see that this, the death, the the murder of George Floyd has gotten people all over the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is is something, it feels different. It's going all over the world. Then I'm hoping and praying that people start listening now. Because if the powers that be don't start listening, the unheard of will continue speaking in their language, and this is going to go on and on. Absolutely. Isabella. Your take on this, please give it to us. I wanted to go back to the idea about the origin of the police, and I think that is very important. They do have their, you know, in the United States specifically, has its origin in the slave patrols, as you were saying, which were, you know, higher guns to keep uh, slaves under control, quote-unquote, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and before the 19th century, there were actually no police forces anywhere in the world in any form that we would recognize them as such today, right? And so the police also, the origin of the police worldwide, and, it, uh, and also in the United States later on, especially in the North, the police was created specifically to control the working class and the poor who are historically, you know, the historically oppressed. So people mm-hmm. who are either, either, especially in this continent, native people or people who are black and brown. Police was not created to protect and serve as a lot of certain, uh, you know, liberals think. And really, I think going from this point forward, 
I think we need to concentrate on two points, which is to defund the police departments, especially police departments in cities like New York. We need to defund them. They have billions of dollars of budget and they have military weapons. So we also need to demilitarize the police, right? Defund the police and demilitarize the police. I agree that we have been bearing the brunt of police brutality for, I mean, and the system, right? Since 527 years ago from the system, uh, police, as I said, begins in the 19th century with, you know, wage labor. And I think this point was important to remember that we can imagine a world without police brutality. You know, we should be able to create societies uh, where human beings can be safe to be human and not expect to be killed in the street as they're just being human Uh, or exercising, you know, the constitutional rights, civil rights or, you know, human rights. And finally, I wanted to make a point about what I think is very important at this moment, too, which is the coalition, the horizontal coalitions between Native people and African-American people. We have a history of doing that. You know, recently, for example, I was reminded of a photograph with one of the members of the American Indian movement in the 70s and how the Black Panthers, uh, you know, were present and supportive of uh, Native people during uh, Wounded Knee in 73. So I think that that's also very important, right, to urge people to to reach across divides that may put us together in communities, but at the same time can be systemically counterproductive because sometimes don't go and support the fight of others, right? But mm-hmm. horizontal coalitions of the oppressed are the ways for us to face this system together and see if we can alter it at some point. Mm-hmm. And it is a shame, for example, that Bernie Sanders, right, the Democrats, took our option of Bernie Sanders away because right now, as, as uh, Shaka was saying, he doesn't only seem like a prophet. He seems like the perfect, who would have been a, a much better candidate to occupy the White House uh, during the outbreak and, uh, and at this current time. Absolutely. And, you know, I... I need to piggyback on what you said about the relationship between Indians and black people. Uh, General Harriet Tubman, throughout her whole career uh, of, of, of moving escaped escapees from plantations and points south to the points north, every, every stop along the way was manned by Native American people. Uh, communities, tribes, and we were the ones that took them in and healed them when they were sick in their plight and flight to the north, uh, fed them when they were hungry. And when they got to New York State, it was Chief Skinnendorf, who was at that time the chief of the uh, Onondaga Indians, would wait until there were between 50, 100, 200, 300 escapees assembled and have his guides and warriors to take them into Canada for absolute freedom. So that relationship has been more than 500 years. However, prior to that, 50,000 years ago, the African came here as a free people. They were the Phoenicians. And as much as these, these white people want to make you believe that they were white sailors, they were not. They were black ocean-going sea merchants that had established international trade on the high seas long before anybody migrated to this part of the world to invade people. 
from Europe. So I'm glad this is Isabella is an, an anthropologist. Um, I have a cousin who is a great anthropologist. Sister Isabella, you may have heard of him. His name is Ivan Van Sertema. And um, yeah, oh. yeah. And, and according to to his research, every native people's language from the, as far south as the Amazon Basin, right, all the way up to what is now Central America, up the east coast of what is now the United States into Canada. So every Native people um, had mandate words in their language, mm -hmm. you know. So that, that proves, uh, points to a long um, relationship. And history. And, and history between uh, these two peoples. And it's something with, that we have to, um, to consider. I know since 1984, I've been, I've had... Um, black people ask me, why are you so concerned about the name of the Washington football team? Why are you so much so invested in, 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 in getting the change? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, my thing is like, well, if someone else is suffering and I don't say anything, then what happens when my turn comes to suffer? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? And I'm looking for, for, um, for someone to say something. And so this, this, this part of the history, I believe, is deliberately kept out of the school books. I teach in high school. Mm -hmm. So even before they get to UCC Isabella at the college level, they have to come through me and they don't get it. Right? I've gotten a lot of trouble over the past 14 years for teaching stuff that they say is not on the curriculum. Yeah. But it's something that um, Jay has come to my classes. You, you know, I mm -hmm. remember first that Jay came to my class and told the students there at Crossland High School that the original people in America look more like you than do me. And all their mouths fell open. <laughs> what you talking about, Willis? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Right>? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? So we have to not just talk about the history. We have to, to live the history. Because for this moment... That we're going through here after George Floyd's death, this moment here, if we don't make it happen now, I don't know when it's going to happen because we've got the world behind us. You know, I, went, I was down in, at um, Lafayette Park on Sunday, mm -hmm. and I was amazed at how many white people were there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and, um, and I saw one woman had her child in a stroller, right? Uh -huh. Another young couple had, the dad was carrying his three-year-old daughter on his shoulders. She, and she was holding up a sign saying, Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, so I'm thinking, if we don't take the opportunity to make this moment work, it, it is going to take the, the murder of another young man, a young woman, mm -hmm. to even get it started again. We've got momentum. We've got to move forward. We've got to make this moment work. Absolutely. Isabella? Well, I actually wanted to go back to um, his comment on capitalism mm -hmm. and I, you know, in relation to the virus, because in fact, you know, capitalism is the cause for both viruses, you know, police brutality and violence, the great depression that most people of color live in in the United States, as well as the virus. So I wanted to say, you know, that I think it's very clear that right now the U.S. empire is in demise. I mean, the very election in 2016 uh, proved that beyond a doubt. Because historically, we've seen that whenever the elite, right, the wealthy, the 1%, feels that their power is under threat, even if it's their own illusion and fiction, 
they will go for repressive regimes, extreme right repressive regimes like the one we're having right now in the U.S. Something that is very disconcerting for me right now, and I think for many scholars, is the fact that there are troops in Washington, D.C. right now, mm-hmm. and they are not part of the U.S. military. They are private army of mercenaries. So that's something that is unprecedented, I feel, in U.S. history, uh, in recent U.S. history. So this, this alteration that we're seeing and how things are done within the United States is precisely, I think, the symptoms of an empire that is dying. The question is whether the empire will kill us all with it, you know, will take us down with it. And the system, you know, capitalism is, is also uh, a, a ludicrous idea. You know, you cannot have infinite growth in a finite environment like planet Earth. So what we're seeing is that collision of forces that we have been foretelling for a very long time, academics and scientists alike. We've been saying, you know, that extinction events would happen. And uh, that is what the the outbreak of COVID-19 is. It's an extinction event. Reaction of the elite in the United States is not to take care of its people, but to attack them Mm -hmm. in a violent way, uh, in the worst moment possible. So I wanted to stress how underlying all of this is this structural economic system that provides extreme wealth accumulation for a very few while others have to struggle to just, you know, have the necessities of life, the basics of, of human life, which are shelter, food and water, and health care. Well, Cicely, I'm so happy that you brought that up. This attack, that's what I, uh, I would call the, the overt attack on the poor. But I think that yeah. the, from the beginning of this um, pandemic, there was a covert attack on the poor. When you're talking about people who can't go to work and can't earn, mm-hmm. and you're dithering around when not to give them $1,200, that you know is not going to last, right? Mm-hmm. We, we, we've seen that the, the 1%, they cannot make their money without the, the essential poor who have to go out to work. And, the, and so this ordering, opening the, the economy to force people back out to work, in my view, is a covert attempt to annihilate these people because... As we saw what happened in the meat markets, right, the meat factories, right. right? Send the people back to work. And all of these fac- uh, factories are now factories of disease, right? So you're basically sending people into the battlefield. It's a, it's a, um, a battlefield, of, uh, I guess I could say germicide battlefield, mm-hmm. you know, um, knowing that they're going to be sickness and death. That's an act of war against the poor. So I agree. yeah, so we get we get a covert and an overt act of war, and the, and the poor better right uh, wise up and start fighting back. I watched this uh, idiot when when these uh, these protesters were being peaceful in Washington D.C. The curfew was not in place. You know, they had like thirty five minutes, and for him to order the military to gas these people and shoot rubber bullets to get them out of the way, even though they were not in violation of the curfew, they were peaceful. For him to walk across Lafayette Square Park to St. John's Church so that he could hold a Bible up in front of everybody. Upside down. Yeah, upside down. And then uh, there was an interview with him when um, that was all over with, I think it was the next day, and he said, the reporter asked him, uh, 
is that your Bible? And he says, it's a Bible. And then, a, then someone else asked him, uh, well, what's your favorite verse? And he says, oh, that's personal. Okay. If it's personal and you are supposed to be allegedly a Christian, then why is it a secret that you're keeping this good word from everybody when the main character in Christianity said, go out and spread the word, do good, help people. So, you know, I, I, got, a, I got a very serious problem with that. And the other thing that I have a serious problem with is uh, him misusing the military and breaking the Constitution by using the military on the people of the same Constitution. And then today, you got all of these great generals, Marine Corps generals and everybody else and former chiefs of staff and all that that are saying, no, this is wrong. And there's been no reaction other than him coming out against General Mattis. Mad Dog Mattis. Yeah, Mad Dog Mattis, who was the, he was the uh, general when I was in the Marine Corps, saying that, uh, oh, he's just an overrated general. Excuse the hell out of me. Overrated? Well, you know, Jay, you're my brother and I love you. And I respect your service in the military. Mm -hmm. But I got a problem with the military. Um, I have a problem with the fact that grown men and women, intelligent men and women, do not know that there are times when there's some, some orders you don't follow. Yeah. There's yeah. some orders you don't follow. You know, um, you, you were in the, in, in the Marines, and I believe there, there was a, a slogan, ours is not to reason why, ours is but to do or die. It was saying, you know, I'm going to take away your, your faculties of reasoning. You just follow orders, and I'm thinking, you know, just following orders is not good enough anymore. Mm -mm. It is not good enough anymore. It's a new day. It's a new day. And Sister Isabella um, points out something very, very crucial. And I've seen it myself. A lot of those, no, not a lot of them, all of those guys down there supposed to be in the military, none of them are wearing insignias. None of the, I, don't, I can't identify what branch of service they're in. Well, we, me and my, my brother, we drove through there yesterday only to find out that there were more DEA, drug enforcement agents, on the streets than there were military. Oh, so they're doing the, 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 bad, the bad deeds and the military gets blamed for it. Yeah. And not only that, prison guards. Prison guards are just the perfect people to put in charge of the situation. Yeah. People who are trained to rough people up. And suppress. And suppress people. Uh, it somehow seem to be the perfect people. So I don't know what um, the thinking, or if any at all, is way off. And that's why I think that no one is going to come and save us. I mean, us being the unheard and the oppressed. We have to save ourselves. We have to band together. And we have to make the most of this moment. And that is why... Uh, the top military generals are actually going up against Trump on this, you know, because they said, wait a minute, we were supposed to be, we took that oath to protect the Constitution and the rights of the people. Mm. And you want to make us go out there and police the people? I don't think so. We're actually calling on all military personnel uh, in active duty that if they're being ordered to violate the constitutional rights of U.S. citizens, they can abstain and they should refuse. 
and there is a hotline for them to call anybody who may be, you know, in doubt or would need someone to consult with. And the telephone number for the hotline is one eight seven seven four four seven four four eight seven. So one eight seven seven four four seven four four eight seven. So if you're an active duty uh, military personnel or National Guard, and you're ordered to violate the U.S., uh, you know, the constitutional rights of U.S. citizens, you have a choice. You don't have to go against the Constitution. You can go against the president who's out of control, but you can you don't have to go out of the you know against the Constitution of the United States. We're also asking police officers to refuse to beat people. You have a conscience, and you're a police officer right now in a place like New York City, or you can also abstain from doing that part of the job uh, if that's required uh, of them. And what's what's um, that what's that number again? One eight seven seven four four seven four four eight seven. Well, I will tell you this: if I was a young man, and I was on active duty in the military, um, they would just have to court martial me because I would not follow this idiot's uh, orders to go against the people that I I swore to protect. Agreed. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what else I can say about this situation without um, running the foul. Well, okay. if, if, if you guys don't mind, I, I have something that I want to add, um, maybe at this point, which is, you know, just some ideas of options that we have as a society on how to organize, you know, the sort of the safety of communities without a heavily militarized, structurally racist and violent police force. Go right ahead. Example, go, 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 go right ahead. Thank you. So, for example, you know, we can have unarmed mediation and intervention teams, and even though that may sound outlandish, that actually exists already in throughout the United States in cities uh, like LA, for example. There are groups like group called Pure Violence. They have a documentary about them that was uh, came out in 2012 called the Interrupters. There's also a feminist model for you know to to specifically organize patrols of local women to protect women and make women feel safer in neighborhoods. So that's one idea, on armed mediation and intervention teams. Another idea would be the decriminalization of almost every crime, because the fact is that 11 to 14 million arrests every year, out of, out of those 11 to 14 million arrests every year, only a, a very small fraction are very violent offenses. So we as a society can also have a conversation about what constitutes a crime and what should then allow society the power to put a person in chains and in a cage for an extended period of time. For example, decriminalization doesn't necessarily work on its own. Uh, And we have the example of of the marijuana cannabis trade, right, that used to be ploy, especially in its distribution, black and Latinos and indigenous and poor whites. Uh, and now it's been monopolized by elite wealthy landowners. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. So you know, so that's an example. But we can work towards you know the decriminalization of you know of petty crimes that end up in uh, sort of the, the end result of them is you, you have police departments having to fill quotas, uh, and then they go into uh, you know uh, black and brown neighborhoods, and in, and if it's the end of the month. Anyone who's doing anything that may be slightly off and consider quote unquote a, a minor crime can be booked and uh, and arrested. We can alter that. We can alter what it is why why we arrest people. 
finally, we can also have more direct democracy at the, com- at the community level. We also need restorative and transformative uh, and trans- sort of transformative justice because the you know the prison industrial complex system is behind this this thing as well, right? The police force feeds this, that uh, prison military industrial complex. Finally, I think community patrol. And, you know, and, in, in, and for working class, you know, poor neighborhoods, especially in the inner city, uh, I would highly recommend, you know, mental health care workers as opposed to police with, with, with weapons that can, can, you know, just demise life in instantly. We just had an example, for example, of how things escalate and the, and the tactics that the New York City Police Department uses. Last night, there was a protest here in the South Bronx organized by a group called STP. This is a group, an organization that is well-known among activist circles, and they are well-trained in civil disobedience. So we know that they were not being violent and they were not causing any form of destruction. They were simply exercising their constitutional rights to to march and demonstrate on, on their positions. We were on the phone with a friend who was at the march, we were on the phone with our friend right before curfew, about you know an hour to a half hour before curfew, where they would have needed to have began to disband and, and head home. But right at that moment, at that crucial time when they had, you know, when they would have had the the ability to still get to you know indoor spaces before curfew and therefore not break curfew, the police surrounded them. The same thing happened here. It was orchestrated. It was planned. It was a strategy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, the, the boarding of, uh, of uh, Franchaka is so appropriate. You know, it is, it is a war, uh, except that we didn't start it. We're just being, you know, the disposable bodies of this capitalist, in, white imperialist, white supremacist, patriarchal mm-hmm. system. Mm-hmm. We've just been the disposable bodies. The attack comes from them. Uh, as a Mallory, right? When she said, we learn violence from you. You have to remember that they were they looted this continent, mm-hmm. and they seem to forget <laughs> that they are on stolen land, and that the, all these you know nation states uh, from the United States and Canada all the way to Argentina are not necessarily under international foreign uh, law mm-hmm. lawful nations. They're occupying occupying nations, and so they tend to forget that have collective historical amnesia and forget <laughs> the violence that they have enacted against the people. For a very long time. In any case, uh, the final thing I wanted to say in reference to New York and what happened yesterday is that so they were surrounded deliberately and deliberately forced to break curfew then. And as soon as 8 p.m. came along, then the police attacked them with tear gas and, mm-hmm. and their platoons. And so now we have activists in the hospital badly beaten and people are still coming out of jail, those who can post bail because they arrested them by the hundreds last night. They use these scare tactics. That's exactly what it is. Okay, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back.
I'm Jay Winter Nightwolf, and this is the American Indian Indigenous Peoples Truth, Justice for All, the most dangerous show on radio, podcasts, and anywhere else. Uh, my guest today is Shaka Abubakan, and my sister Isabel Anarate. Shaka, what do you have to say? I like some of the ideas that Sister Isabel uh, brought forward, like the mediation and so on. But I must admit that I'm a bit of a skeptic. I'm not sure that that, was, that, that would work. I like the idea, but I, I, I look at the, the society in which I live, and I look at the people who are in charge, and it's, it's amazing that, that those of us who are being oppressed are actually acting as tools of the oppressors to oppress our own. Mm-hmm, you know, because mm-hmm. none of these police officers, the police officers are working people. Yeah, they're working class people. Um, some of these soldiers are working class people, and you would think that they would band together with the other working class people, but instead they are using um, allowing themselves to be used against their fellow working classes. Then I look at people like um, um, I'm sure you guys are familiar with Candace Owens, mm-hmm. you know, um, Jason Whitlock, and people of this elk who um, allow themselves to be used as a as, as tool against their own group, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Right? So I am I, I would love to see those things where I'd love to see the disband disbandment of the police um the police force. I think what uh, took place in Los Angeles, um where the mayor's uh, taking money away from the, the police force to put into other areas, I think it's not enough, but it's a good start. Yeah. And I think the fact that he began this, all the cities should, should pick up on this. I wish Washington D.C. would pick up on it. I saw the fact that the mayor had Black Lives Matter painted on the, on the roadway leading to the White House. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe she's finally showing some gumption. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so it just takes a spark. And oh, I'm, I'm hoping that what happened in Los Angeles is that spark. Because when a citizen is wrongly murdered, and then the city has to pay his fam, his or her family, millions of dollars a, a year later. So here I am. I'm a taxpayer and a citizen. My neighbor is is is, is killed, and by people who are paid by my taxes. And now I have to take my taxes to pay the family of the uh, of the wrongfully murdered while the one percent goes scot-free so i think if we can take money in, in like when freddie gray for instance when freddie gray in baltimore mm-hmm. after he was killed when his family uh, were awarded a number um i've got how much money then the, the year later that money should have come out of the police pension are we take it out of the police pension? They would think twice about doing what they do. Oh, doing. absolutely. You know, the union would have a fit. Well, they could have a fit, but we just take that. That's where the money should come from. When we have to pay the families of of, of these um, victims, that's a double whammy on the the, the taxpayer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a double whammy. So I, I I'm hoping that what happened in Chicago. I mean, I'm sorry, in L.A. will be a spark. I am, and Sister Isabella, I, um, I don't want to sound like a pessimist because I really like some of the things that, a lot of what you said. I just kind of think, remind myself that I'm living in these yet-to-be United States. Yeah. And it's going down the tubes. Thank you, Shaka. You're welcome. Isabella, you got the final word. 
I'll say that the ideas that I just proposed before, they're long-term ideas, right? We're not necessarily in that place right now. So where we are at this point, especially in a place like New York, for example, I think that here for New York State, our proposals are different, right? Where we are right now, we would want the governor and the legislature to, for example, fully repeal a law called 50-A, which is the New York State police secrecy law that allows police misconduct and abuse records to be hidden from the public. And then another point that we are asking from the state is also to support the enactment of a new law, S1803-B, that would require police departments across the state to report demographic and geographic detail on enforcement of low-level offenses and deaths that occurred either while they're attempting to arrest citizens or when they have already detained and arrested citizens. And finally, we would want New York State Council, we think that they should commit to reducing the NYPD budget by a billion dollars annually because their budget is excessive. And, uh, and it's invested in the killing of people. And then finally, we urgently need, as I said earlier, transformative justice, right? We need to move away from the prison industrial complex. Absolutely. Uh, we not, you know, continue to make a profit out of chaining people and robbing them of life. Absolutely. Either Thanks. by putting them in prison or by killing them in the street. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Isabella. But before you go, would you give that number again for um, where people that are in the military can call to get uh, explanation to their rights and their duties, those who want to refuse the orders of, of this president? Yeah. So if you are a National Guard or active duty military and you are ordered to violate the constitutional rights of U.S. citizens, then uh, the number for the GI rights hotline, that's what it's called, GI rights hotline, is one eight seven seven four four seven four four eight seven. One more time. Yes? One more time. One more time. So the number is one eight seven seven four four seven four four eight seven. Thank you so much. Yes. One, because people are free to exercise their conscience, you know? You don't have mm-hmm. to compulsorily find, you know, follow the orders of, of your bosses, you know, even when you're in the military. Right. One last point I want to make. Um, the fact that we, that this country sends the police department over to Israel for training, we well, have the, the, the people who um, serve and protect, or protect and serve, whatever, whichever combination you want to use, are being trained by an occupying force. So when I walk down the streets of Washington, D.C., and I look to my left or look to my right, and I see those blue lights that are on 24 hours a day on the the top of those police cars, cars, that's a tactic used by an occupying force to always remind those who are are occupied of the presence of the occupier. So we need to stop that. Thank you so much, Shaka and Isabella. I am so honored to have had an opportunity to talk to both of you today and to get your your deep soulful feelings on everything that's happening around us i'm jay winter night wolf and this is again the american indian indigenous people's truths justice for all the most dangerous show on radio podcasts and anywhere else i'll talk to you again next time Where would we be and what would we 
be today if the Western Hemisphere had not been visited and disturbed by Europeans and their encroachments and continuous acts of genocide? How would we have flourished and grown if the disturbance from across the Atlantic had not happened? How would cultures and traditions have grown? Would our healing arts and natural healing modalities have survived? Would our governmental orders have worked? Would there be a need to advance our weapons of defense? What would our survival look like for us today? These many questions require many answers. You see, this whole experience of domination by any means necessary is not a new idea. The domination of the Western Hemisphere started back in the late 1400s at and by the hand of the wealthy, greedy, crowned heads of Europe. Now suppose none of that ever happened. What would the Western Hemisphere be like today with only native rule? Would there be police brutality and murders that we are forced to live with? Would the police be given the right to openly kill non-European whites? Let's suppose we had a native government in place, and if you take a real look at the Western Hemisphere before 1492, you will find a working form of democracy already in place. We had a centralized government order named Cahokia. This was where representatives of all tribal nations came together periodically to sit in council. This was where the important decisions were made to govern our people. This was here and established before the white man came. There was no need for prisons because we were taught how to respect each other and how to live together. Were there human conflicts, even conflicts among tribes? Of course, but more often the power of cooperative effort won the day for native peoples. Wisdom of the elders was passed down and well respected. After centuries of shared knowledge, native peoples knew much more than just survival skills. They knew how to live in harmony with our grandmother, the earth, and with each other. With peace and tribal commerce came prosperity. Based on learning and practicing these lessons, rather than the European models of rape pillage, and profit. For example, the Cahokia people of what is now Missouri and Mississippi knew where to construct mound dwellings that would survive the river's frequent floods. In essence, these were the principles of the great law of peace, real democracy from the Iroquois Confederacy. We knew how to live with and respect each other because these principles were taught us from the cradle boards.
if the white man wants to live in peace with the Indian, he can live in peace. There need be no trouble. Treat all men alike. Give them all the same law. Give them all an even chance to live and grow. You might as well expect the rivers to run backward, as that any man who was born a free man should be contented when penned up and denied liberty to go where he pleases. We only ask an even chance to live as other men live. We ask to be recognized as men. Let me be a free man, free to travel, free to stop, free to work, free to choose my own teachers, free to follow the religion of my fathers, free to think and talk and act for myself. 